What a guy. Well, good morning and welcome to Gateway. Are you guys having a good day? Don't believe you. That was weak. If you were the students, I'd be making fun of you right now, but you're not. So, hey, can I open up with a word of prayer just like we did last week? Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. God, whenever we hear that you're the shepherd, God, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to have a shepherd? Well, first, it means that we're sheep and that we're dumb. We make mistakes. We, we need somebody guiding us. We need somebody leading us. We need somebody showing us exactly what we need to do. Not only that, but you are our safety. You are what keeps us safe. Whenever sheep are out in the wild, God, they have no defense but to run. A shepherd is meant to protect from the evil, from the danger in the world. And God, when we read that you are our shepherd, that means that you are our safety. You are what keeps us safe in the world. You are what guides us. Verse two, he, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. God, I don't know about the people out here, but I know that there are so many days, so many minutes, so many hours that I spend wasting in worry. Wondering what is or what could be, what may be. And God, I, I forget that you lead us by quiet waters. Is that whenever the world around us is, is, is chaotic, loud, whenever we're wasting time with worry, God, you are guiding us by the stillness of your world. You are trying to show us where the peace is, and yet we keep listening to the chaos. You renew our life. So God, as we talk today, let today be a conversation. Let it be a moment where we focus on you and that you lead us by still waters, even in the middle of chaos. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we started this series a couple weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are taking a route that we want to show you the longest section of Scripture that Jesus has ever taught. This is the first sermon that we read about Jesus talking as far as like a, in, a, in a sermon style. And it's like Jesus just walks up to this place and he just starts talking. And the more he keeps talking, the more people keep showing up. So then Jesus just keeps talking and preaching and telling the people what they need to hear. It's no coincidence that it's at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Now, last week or a couple weeks ago, I'm sorry, we, we talked about what it meant to be a part of this law. What does that look like? And in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, it says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. He did not come to get rid of what people knew. He came to give people what they knew, but then fulfill what they knew. But there was an issue is that we have this group of people called the Pharisees. And in verse 20 of chapter five, it says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was going to make people mad. The Pharisees were given authority and for right reason. There was a time to where the Old Testament law, meaning what you read throughout the whole Old Testament, was needing to be followed. The Pharisees, they get a bad rap and for right reason. They were like the picture perfect example of people who did everything right and still did nothing right. 
if that makes sense to you, is that they continue to try to follow what the Old Testament law taught. They did their best, but now they were putting their preferences ahead of Jesus. And as much as they were talking about the Old Testament law, keeping with the rules, doing this and doing that, Jesus walks up, he says, guys, it's me. And they're like, stop talking, old man. And then they try to get him killed. So the Pharisees get a bad rap because they are just doing what they thought they were doing right. They were attempting to do it to the best, but the problem was they kept missing the point. It was like the joke that you sometimes tell that the punchline never hits and then it's just awkward. This is the Pharisee's life. And it's that awkward silence that sometimes you guys give to me. There it is again. Man, you guys are on it this morning. Thank you for being a part of my sermon. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we talked about righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? In this section of scripture, we talk about uh, righteousness and how our righteousness needs to supersede me, go above and beyond the Pharisees. Because again, they're trying to earn favor by doing right. And so Jesus starts out, I didn't come to get rid of what they thought. I came to fulfill what they already knew but they're missing it, so you need to go beyond that. Now, if you were to look up what righteousness is, the the Lexham Theological Workbook defines it this way. Righteousness is the conformity or the obedience to a standard or obligation that is normally understood to be morally good, such that the expectations and requirements of relationship towards God and neighbor are satisfied. So Philip, sum that up for me. Righteousness means that you are having a right relationship with Jesus. It's that simple. We try to to take the dictionary words and we want to change them and we want to say, God, I want to do this. I want to earn this. I want to earn that. And yet Jesus is like, you're missing the point. Being righteous is not about what you do. It's about who you know that I am. And righteousness is what we are meant to to, to, to seek. Matter of fact, Paul writes in Philippians chapter one and chapter three and in Romans four about about righteousness and that it doesn't come from just knowledge of God's word, but it comes about living out what you know. And the Pharisees have this backwards. And I think if we were to ask people around here today, we can get it backwards where we think that we can earn righteousness by doing the good works, by doing this and by doing that. And yet he's saying, it's not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you. What makes you righteous is not doing good things in the world to make your name great, but what makes you righteous is about what Jesus did for you. And yet we like to get that twisted. So then let's go back to that verse real quick in chapter five where it says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What that tells me is that there is a benefit to the law somewhere. And that there is a reason to why Jesus is like, I'm here to fulfill this law. So we can't just ignore it and say, no, get rid of this thing. It's not important. There's obviously an importance factor about it. So maybe you're asking the question, well, I thought we were a New Testament church and that that old stuff doesn't matter. Or maybe you're like, hey, what's the point of the Old Testament law to begin with? Do we need to obey it? Should we be doing more of of, of these rituals? Should we be sacrificing goats on behalf of our sin? Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, I'm just kidding. No, that stuff is not as important. That stuff is not important anymore. That's not how sin is forgiven anymore. Now today we're going to be in Matthew chapter five, and if you have your Bible, and, and, and I'm a proponent of bringing this with you if you can, but in Matthew chapter five, we're going to be reading a whole lot of scripture today. And these sections that we're going to be finishing today, you're going to hear, you have heard it said. 
And every time that you hear Jesus saying that phrase, he is getting ready to bring up an Old Testament law that they've heard. So if you do have your phone or a hard copy, I'm going to encourage you to to underline that when he says, you have heard it said, and then circle the word but beside it. Because whenever you hear the phrase, you have heard it said, but, that means that he's not getting rid of what you have said. Instead, I'm going to add on to what you know. I want you to know the importance of what that was, but I want you to know that there's more to it than that. There's more to it. So God's not here to say, hey, get rid of that nonsense. It's not real anymore. He says, you have heard it this way, but I wanna show you another way, a better way, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. But to set the stage today, we have to kind of do a, a, an overview of what the Old Testament law is. So if you know what a water hose is, think about like a fire hydrant, open your mouth. I'm gonna open up this fire hydrant, catch as much water as you can, okay? There were three main laws, the ceremonial, the dietary, and the moral. Now, the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws are things that have kind of passed on. These are things that were fulfilled whenever Jesus came. So whenever you read, and we're going to go through some examples here, about things needing to be sacrificed, or when you hear about having to wash yourself in certain ways before you can enter the sanctuary, we don't follow those things anymore because Jesus fulfilled them. But the moral laws, on the other hand, are timeless. They are meant to be forever. They are not meant to change. They can't change. Instead, we just keep reading them as our brains do. You don't need to tell me that murder's wrong. I know that. Well, how? Because there's morality inside of us. You don't need to tell me that stealing is wrong. Why? Well, because there's something inside of me that says that. And whenever we go against that, that's why we're like, hey, you can't do that. Okay, well, why? Well, because God says so. Well, who says that? The moral law inside of us is the spirit speaking out that was given in the Old Testament that is laid upon your heart as we read. So let's go through a couple of examples today of the ceremonial laws. These are going to get fun. These were restrictions on how to dress. They were ways to, to cut your hair if you were allowed to. Matters of hygiene, how to participate in feasts, festivals, and even how to worship. Let's give a couple of real examples. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. If you do not have a beard or if you have cut your hair in the last life, sorry, you're a sinner. You're not worth it anymore. Because back in the Old Testament, if you cut your beard or you shaved your head, that shows that you were a pagan. The reason that God wanted the Jews to set themselves apart was because he wanted people to know who his people were. And this was the outward symbol of that. So if you cut your hair or your beard, you are no longer seen as God's chosen. And that was the opposite of what he wanted. This one's super comfortable comfortable for me to talk about, so let's do it. In Leviticus chapter 15, it says that women have to wait seven days after their menstrual cycle. And then on the eighth day, they had to bring two turtle doves or pigeons to the priest to sacrifice. Listen, I don't need to know, but whenever you bring two turtle doves and then you kill them in front of us, we're gonna know what that day was. That's an uncomfortable thing, but that's how you knew that people were clean or unclean. That was the mark of when a woman became clean again for however season that was back then. Okay, let's keep going because I want to get away from that one as fast as possible. Sinners and rams. In Leviticus chapter 5, we read that anybody who had to bring a perfect ram to the priest to make atonement for them for the wrong that they had committed unintentionally. 
and they will be forgiven. So that means that you get this pet and you have this farm, and I like to put things in my 2023 brain, but I think that you get this pet, you get this ram, and you're like, oh, I love this ram. You give it a cute little pet name, and and you're growing it up. It's perfect. It's the best thing ever. And then your dad all of a sudden goes out into the farm, grabs it, and kills it in front of you. Dad, why'd you kill, uh, kill our pet? Well, daddy sinned unintentionally. And that was the rule. That's what you had to do. This was, again, the outward appearance that you had done something wrong and blood had to be shed on behalf of your sin. All right, well, let's move down to the dietary laws here. And these aren't uh, uh, binding to us anymore. And not only is it about the outward appearance, but God was just as concerned on what you put on the inside, physically. In Leviticus chapter 11, it says, God says, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones that you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. Well, that's not good enough. Okay, well, God says, let's continue. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonial unclean for you. The hyrax, which is like a a cute little animal, though it chews cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, doesn't have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, how many of y'all like bacon? Get over it. Though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. That's pretty particular, right? Okay, now by a show of hands, how many of you guys like seafood? Yep, this is the interactive portion. Yep. Get over it. Seafood. Uh, It says in Leviticus 11 that you couldn't eat shrimp, crab, oysters, or lobster. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that we don't follow these anymore. Because if we're like, okay, it's no wonder that people were stressed out and wondering, like you're wandering out in the desert and then you have all these different rules. Like this is a hard thing to live up to. It's impossible. Jesus, I mean, God knew that it was impossible. They were never meant to fulfill this 100%, but they were sheep who needed a shepherd. They needed to be, no, to be told what was right and what was wrong. So maybe you're like me and you're asking the question, then why is the law there? Why did Jesus come to fulfill something that was impossible to fulfill for us back then? People were just trying their best and they continued to mess it up. Well, it's pretty simple. It was just a temporary placeholder. It was just meant to be there for a moment. If you'll do some Bible here. In Galatians chapter three, it says, but scripture has locked up everything. And pay attention to the vernacular here. Under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up until that faith that was to come would be revealed. What's the purpose of the law? To keep us locked up underneath a sort of rule, underneath a law, so that we didn't mess up too much. It was meant to to lock us up until this coming faith, who is who? Jesus. So the law was our what? Our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There are times where you just wanna stop scripture and walk out and say, good day but we got to keep going. The point of the law was to keep us in, 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 a, in a box to say, until Jesus comes, you need to know what right and wrong is. Here's what it is. And then when Jesus comes, those laws, the ceremonial ones, the dietary ones, they're not binding anymore. 
They're not meant to be. In Colossians chapter two, it says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or about a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Philip, sum it up. Christianity is a religion of the heart based on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the point of all of this, is that our faith is meant to be through Jesus and not through things that we do. And whenever we understand that, then that kind of opens us up to realize, I don't have to do something to earn the love of God. That means that you can't do anything to lose the love of God. It's just there. The question is, is are you going to choose it? So what's the summary of this law? Well, number one, the law explains what sin is. So this, uh, this past week, we were in Nashville for a conference, and I was rooming with Josh Robertson, the Beckley campus pastor, and, and I look over, and we have a sprinkler head in our hotel room, and it's like not one from the ceiling, but it's on the wall. You know what I'm talking about? And there was a massive sticker with a coat hanger in a circle with a line through it, which says what? Don't hang clothes from a sprinkler head. That's common sense, am I right? That should be understandable and be like, I never would think about that. Why? Because if you break the little glass thing in there, a lot of water is going to get in there really quick and you can do nothing about it but run. But you know what that sticker tells me? Somebody's done it. Somebody's hung their suit off of a sprinkler head and has ruined somebody else's day because of it. The Old Testament law is a sticker with a line through it. It is the thing that says, don't do this. And God is like, listen, you guys need something. Here's your something, circle, line. And then he gives out the specifics through Moses to us. If you want to read more about it, go into Leviticus. If you are a student or a kid here, don't start in Leviticus. In Romans chapter seven, it says, for I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's saying, I wouldn't know what that was if something hadn't told me what that was. And that thing was the Old Testament law. Number two, the law exposes sin in us. Now, there was a thing that we had in middle school that was either your best friend or a tattletale, and it was called a thermometer. Philip, what do you mean? There are several times where I did not want to go to school. So you know what I would do? I would take that thermometer, and I would put it over my light bulb, and I would heat that sucker up as high as I could. And my mom would walk in and be like, Mom, I don't feel good. I'm like, look, I already took my temperature. And then she'd be like, huh, 114. That's strange. I'm like, I know. She goes, yeah, you should be dead. A thermometer is the thing that would tell you when you were sick and when you're not sick, whenever you're good and when you're not good. The law is kind of like that spiritual thermometer for us that tells us when we're sick. It's the thing that tells us that there's something broken inside of us that we need. There's something that, 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 that we can't save ourselves, so you're sick. Well, what is that sickness? Well, number three the law expresses our need for a savior. In Romans chapter three, it says that we have all fallen short and have all fallen away from the glory of God. That's every single person in this room. So what do we do about it? Well, we realize that we need somebody to save us. And that person is Jesus. Now, over the next couple of minutes, over the remaining time, we're gonna be reading through a lot of scripture. I tend to talk fast, I'll try not to. But if you do have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting with verse 21. And we're going to be reading 
one phrase, one thing. Like there, there's like a topic, and then we're going to talk about what God's heart is. But I want to set the stage here. We love to go to the Sermon on the Mount, and we love to look at the subheadings, and we see murder. We see things like adultery and divorce, and we just focus on those things, and those are good things that we could do. Today is not that day. So if you find yourself being like, man, I wish he would stop and talk a little bit more on divorce, we believe that there is a lot the Bible says about divorce. We believe there's a lot of things that the Bible says about murder and adultery. But today in, our, in this sermon series, we're not focusing on the trees. We're looking at the forest. Does that make sense? We're looking at scripture from a hot air balloon and we're looking down at what the whole scene is. And we wanna see the overarching theme here. What is Jesus trying to make? So he's telling them, you have heard this, but I say this. And we're looking at the forest. We wanna see what is Jesus trying to tell the people here? So Matthew chapter five, he talks about murder. Starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Circle, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is an answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. In front of that altar, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer the gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said that murder is bad, but I'm here to tell you that being angry is just as bad. You have heard that killing somebody is bad, but I'm telling you that you need to take everything that you know about hostility, being angry with a brother or a sister. And if you're like, man, the most important thing is for me to come and offer this gift, Jesus says, leave that gift, go be reconciled. And why? Because God has a heart for life. He doesn't want you to be thinking about life in a way that just benefits you. He wants you to see him. He wants you to see his goodness. And the way we live goodness is through the life with people, with being reconciled with people. God's heart is life. Number two, adultery. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Happy Sunday. I'm here to tell you, this is not to be read literally. How do I know? The disciples would have had a lot of missing appendages if it was. Whenever Jesus is talking here, he goes, I want you to take your thoughts seriously. It's not just the action that separates you and gets rid of what I want for you. It's your thought process that's just as bad as that. You take the things that, that, that are coming into here, that are an outflow of here, and you take it just as seriously as doing the action. So you know what that tells me? Cut out social media. Cut out the person on Facebook you shouldn't be messaging. Cut out the friend who is causing you to sin. 
You cut out anything that gets in the way of your marriage, no matter what the cost is, because God values your commitment. God values exactly what you're supposed to do. God, I mean, I'm sorry, your faithfulness, I'm sorry. He values your faithfulness. He values you being faithful to your spouse. That means that if you need to cut off something, you cut off anything that's getting in the way of your marriage. Because if we aren't being faithful to our spouse, then we're not being faithful to God. And maybe you're like, hey, I don't have a spouse. This still applies the exact same way. Because if you're looking at somebody as if they're an object, then you're not seeing them for the person that God made them to be. People are not objects to be used. They're people to be glorified because they're made in the image of God, just like you. God's heart is for faithfulness. Number three, divorce. Starting in verse 31. It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But, circle, highlight, underline, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Forest, not the trees. When I say that, God wants reconciliation to always be the case. See, it says commitment. God values your commitment. He values your, 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 your relationship with people. And we can, we, listen, we can have the conversation of what are the specifics about divorce. That's a conversation for another time and they are important and we're not skirting past them. I cannot specify that enough. But what God's heart is, is for you to live a committed life with the people you're in life with. And that whenever we focus so much on specifics, sometimes we get, we, we get lost that God's heart is for you to stay committed to the people that are around you, to your spouse, to your friends, to your parents, to your kids. God's heart is for commitment. Number four, promises. In verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said this way, but I'm telling you, unless you can say with a, with a simple yes or no, don't even promise it because your word is important. God's heart is one of integrity. Who are you? Who is the person that you actually are? What is the thing that, that, that when people are behind you that they're saying about you? Are you wishy-washy? Are you somebody who keeps your word? Are you somebody that people can trust? Are you somebody that people look up to? Or are you somebody who's like, man, I'm not gonna tell them anything because they are snitches. Be a person of integrity. Why? Because God's heart is one of integrity. Let's go down a little bit more here. Uh, number five, retaliation. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, meaning what you do is what you get. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat too. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Back then, whenever a Roman soldier would be walking, he could force somebody to carry their stuff for a mile. So if I'm a Roman soldier, I'm tired, I'm tired of carrying my stuff. I see, a, I see somebody else, I'm like, hey, carry my stuff. The max that they could go is one mile. But Jesus takes that and he says, hey, not only do you go that one mile, but whenever they legally have to make you stop, you pick it back up and you go another mile. Why? Because God's people are meant to be set apart. They're meant to be something better. You're meant to go that extra mile. Why? Because God's heart is one of forgiveness. You've heard it said that it was an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist them. Who is the person that you avoid? Who is the group of people that you can't get along with? Who is the group of people that you want nothing to do with and that you almost try to avoid at all costs? Because God says, hey, do extra for them. When they hurt you, do more. If they take you to jail, I mean, take you to court and, they, and you didn't do anything wrong and they take your shirt, well, then take the jacket off your back and give that to them because God's people are meant to be set apart. And lastly, sorry, that God's heart is one of forgiveness. And then last, it's loving your neighbor. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, I pose the question because I think it's a perfect lead-in is, who is the group of people you want to avoid? It's really easy for us to love people whenever they think like you. It's really easy to have a conversation with somebody whenever you have something in common. It's really easy for you to, to, to wrap your arms around your family and hug them and tell them that you'll be there for them. But what about the person who maybe destroyed your reputation? Maybe the person who tried to get in the way of a relationship. Maybe, the, maybe you're so angry at somebody that you don't even wanna look them in the face. And yet whenever I read this, it says to make sure that you do for them what you would do for your mom or for your dad or for your kids. Why? Because God's heart, and this is the crux of it all, is one of love. You see, we want so much to grab a hold of the things that we can control and then control them. But then whenever we sit back and ask ourselves, well, what control do I really have? Well, the answer is none. Whenever we say that God's heart is love, this is the forest for the trees here, is that we're, we're looking at everything and God says, don't get caught up in the semantics of everything. You are meant to have a relationship with me because I am love. The theme throughout the whole New Testament is that God is love. Go through and just count the number of times that Jesus is talking about love or the disciples are talking about love or, or maybe even in Revelation, 1st, 2nd John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Peter, like all these, I'm sorry, I had that backwards, but all these different things about love. Why? Because God's heart is one of love. 
It's not about doing anything to earn God's love. It's about God's heart. It's not about the fruit that you eat. Instead, it's about the fruit that you grow. It's not about rituals or ceremonies or properly cleaning yourself to walk into a sanctuary or, or sacrificing things on your behalf. It's about a relationship with the one who sacrificed everything for you. In Galatians chapter three, a little bit farther down what we read, and I wanna read a little bit more with it. It says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith was to come, would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that Jesus is here, you don't need that guardian because that guardian lives in you. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. The band's gonna come out, and and I wanna wrap this up with this. There are people here who feel broken beyond fix. There are people who feel dirty. There are people who feel completely lost and, and unaware of what God can do. But whenever I read that scripture in Galatians, he's pointing out the law was a temporary placeholder until Jesus came. The law wasn't meant to be forever. So if you're reading the Old Testament and you're like, man, it seems like they have to do a lot of stuff and still get in trouble. Yeah. But it was never meant to fix them. It shows me that God still gave them a way to get to him because he came to them. Whenever you read that the law was a guardian until Christ, it's, everything points to Christ. And even more than that, when he says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, means that there's neither chosen or unchosen. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Instead, every single person across the world, across time, has the chance to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Am I right? And we try to convince ourselves that we're too broken, we're too busted. And God says, yeah, you are. But that's why I sent Jesus. You are too broken. You are too dirty. You are too busted. But Jesus, the one who wasn't broken, dirty, or busted, died for you. Died for me. And man, do we try to complicate it. If you have any questions about this, if you, if you have anything that, that you want to talk about, maybe the next steps or anything, I'll be up here on your right, um, and I would love to talk with you. But I know that there are people in here who are struggling, and that'll be the case for the end of time. And I'm here to tell you that God had a good day when he made you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And as I said last service, I'll say this service. I start out every prayer by thanking you because sometimes I forget to thank you. I want to immediately jump into, God, please do this. Please do this for me. Please do that for me. And, uh, and God, I feel like sometimes you're, you're trying to pull me across the quiet waters. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I really like this spot over here. But God, thank you.
Thank you for the silly reminders in my day that to enjoy the little things. As I'm sitting here and I pull out of my pocket a little broken up straw that Everly got from a kid zone this morning. I'm reminded about family and how important they are and that you've entrusted Julie and I to be her parents. And God, there are people out here who feel like they're missing the mark as parents. God, we will. But help us to do our best to take care of the gifts that you give us. God, I'm reminded about your goodness even in the midst of chaos. And God, when you say to have a childlike faith, it means that we grab things like a cut up straw that we get at Kid Zone and we play sword fight after the first service. Because the faith and the happiness of a child should never be an afterthought. Instead, you say to not keep the little children from you. Father, thank you for this time, for these people, and for our moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.